0: I want to talk tonight about the concept of right effort and where right effort might lie. Because it's confusing, it's kind of puzzling. Very often when we hear the word effort, it implies strain and struggle, somehow a possibility of failing. Yet it's meant to be one of the greatest pointers to our own capacity for understanding. One of the primary elements of Right Effort is the factor of aspiration. It's having a huge, really tremendous, steadfast sense of aspiration, a sense of possibility. When I talk about aspiration, I usually start out by telling a story that many of you have heard, which is about how we uh, came to purchase this building, this facility, 26 years ago. Uh, Joseph and Jack Kornfield and I had been back from Asia for just a few years in uh, 1974, is when I came back from India. Um, Beginning in 1974, we wandered around the country leading retreats in a rather haphazard fashion. We would get a letter from somebody saying, well, I can get together, you know, a cook and some friends, will you come teach a retreat? And we'd go do that. And then at the end of that retreat, we never really knew if there'd be another retreat until the next letter came. And somewhere in that period of time, a friend said, well, you know, why don't you think about beginning a retreat center of your own? It would be like a sacred site in this country. It would be a repository for the energy that gets cultivated when people come together to practice this way, rather than just having the energy disperse at the end of the course. So that sounded good, and much to the sorrow of many of our friends, the most interested people in doing this were on the East Coast, rather than Hawaii or <laughs> someplace like that at the time. So we looked up and down the East Coast for a place, and. Finally, somebody suggested that we come to Barry, Massachusetts where uh, the Archdiocese, the Catholic Archdiocese had this facility run by the Fathers of the Blessed Sacrament. And so we came here in December 1975 and we were quite confused about what to do. On the one hand, it seemed absolutely perfect for a retreat center and here we are, you know, it's, it's quiet, there's nothing much happening in Barry. you know, it's pretty placid. Um, it it just seemed perfect. And yet, on the other hand, we had been living this existence for a couple of years at that point, and the place just seemed huge. We weren't at all sure how many people would become interested in this country and doing this form of meditation. So in trying to decide what to do, we went to downtown Barry for lunch, which those of you who pass through it know it's a very classical New England town with a town green in the center of it, In those days, there was a town monument. There was a monument right in the center of the green which had engraved upon it the Barry Town motto, which turned out to be Tranquil and Alert. So we looked at that and we said, okay, any town that has a motto like Tranquil and Alert should have a meditation center in it. That's some kind of omen. So we did it. And I still enjoy it, actually. Um, You know, sometimes... One of the two police cars goes by, and uh, it says "Tranquil and Alert" on the door. Or, uh, friends of mine got married in town, and "Tranquil and Alert" was stamped on their wedding certificate, which I thought was a pretty good blessing for a marriage. Um, <laughs> so that's the Barry Town motto. One year, uh, Mioshin was reading the rather slim volume that's the history of the town of Barry, and. She came upon this story. The, the main building, the main part of the building, was actually once a mansion. It was a private home built by somebody who was the lieutenant governor of Massachusetts. His name was Colonel Gaston. And uh, the yoga room was the billiards room, I believe, and <laughs> it has a whole history all in and of itself. And according to this, this booklet... Colonel Gaston himself had a personal motto, something he tried to live by, something that defined his aspiration in life and that was you should live every day so you can look any damn man in the eye and tell him to go to hell. <laughs> so I heard that and I first my thought was I wonder how well Colonel Gaston got along with his neighbors which, who were perhaps going around trying to be tranquil and alert. <laughs> But I think the truth is that most of us do have some kind of motto. We have almost like an encapsulated philosophy that describes what we think we're capable of, what our lives are about, what we dedicate our energies to, who we think we can become. Sometimes it's more on the side of tranquil and alert. Sometimes it's more on the side of Colonel Gaston. And often something that we encounter as we go within this process of meditation is the recognition that 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 sense of aspiration can be quite circumscribed, limited, held in, constrained. One of my very great teachers, this Tibetan master, named Nyoshal Ken Rinpoche, was very pointed in his teaching about this he more or less said, although this is a bad paraphrase, he said something like, why is your sense of aspiration so small? Why is it so so measly? Why not aspire to be a fully liberated being for the sake of all beings? Why not? That why not becomes a, a challenge to us as we, as we meditate. Why not? Why do we have such an incredibly small sense of what is possible? The truth is that once we understand the law of change, then we understand how much possibility there always is. That which seems oppressive, inert, unyielding, unchanging, in fact, is coming and going all of the time. Whatever it is, a physical sensation, a mental state, an external experience, an encounter, a relationship, a situation. Everything is made up of change. It's the very fabric of existence. Once we see change, we see life. And therefore, we can, we can aspire to go beyond the circumstances we've inherited, the sense of being bound that we may be struggling with. I found once the, what I felt was the, the perfect description of our general conditioning. <clears throat> this was a time when uh, Joseph and I and some friends moved into a house on the Cape that someone had rented for us to do a retreat in. And when I went into my designated bedroom, I saw that somebody had left a cartoon on the desk from the Peanuts comic strip. In the first frame of the cartoon, Lucy is saying to Charlie Brown, You know, Charlie Brown, what your problem is, the problem with you is that you're you. (laughs) Then in the next frame of the cartoon, Charlie Brown looks at her and says, Well, what in the world can I do about that? (laughs) Then in the final, the third and final frame of the cartoon, Lucy says, I don't pretend to be able to give advice. I merely point out the problem. (laughs) And somehow, whenever I was doing walking meditation, my eye would fall on that cartoon and would fall right on that line. The problem with you is that you're you. We can contrast that to an image of the Buddha as Bodhisattva as being aspiring to enlightenment, sitting under the Bodhi tree. As legend has it, he sat down under the Bodhi tree in what is now Bodhgaya in India with the determination to free his mind from limitation, from conditioning, from fear, from grasping. He sat down with the determination to experience an immensity of wisdom and a boundlessness of compassion having sat down under the tree, the Bodhisattva was attacked by this legendary figure known as Mara. Mara is known as the the killer of virtue and the killer of life. And Mara very much did not want the Bodhisattva to become awakened, to become a Buddha. And so he began trying to get him to give up his, his aspiration. Mara appeared as these very tempting, alluring, sensual visions to try to get the bodhisattva to get up. But the bodhisattva just sat there, unmoved, unshaken by Mara's taunt. And then Mara appeared as these very frightening visions and hailstorms and rainstorms and all kinds of things to try to make the bodhisattva uneasy and unsettled to get him to give up. And still the bodhisattva just sat there. Finally, in the the last attack of Mara, he attacked in the form of basically really what we would call self-doubt. He more or less said, especially if you're from New York, he more or less said to the bodhisattva, Who do you think you are? <laughs> you know, to imagine you can have that immense an aspiration. Who do you think you are? By what right, he more formally said, by what right are you sitting there with that determination, with that sense of possibility? And it said that in response to this last challenge of Mara's in the very famous mudra or image that's depicted in, in many Buddhist statues like the one behind me, the, the bodhisattva reached over his knee with his hand. He reached his hand over his knee and touched the earth. Calling upon the earth itself to bear witness to the many lifetimes in which he had held that sense of aspiration and nourished it through the cultivation of generosity and morality and loving kindness and equanimity and so that almost it was almost like a a wave of moral force had swept him to that moment where he had every right to be sitting there with that immense an aspiration. It said that as he did that, he touched the earth, and the earth shook, bearing witness to all of those lifetimes, to his right to be free, his right to be enlightened. And so Mara, seeing that, was vanquished, fled into the night. The Bodhisattva sat through the night and became enlightened at the appearance of the first morning star. In a way, Mara was like that Lucy voice. And just as the bodhisattva could touch the earth and find the affirmation of his right to be there, so can we all. It's not by accident that one comes to a path of practice, that one is willing to take a risk to look deeper, to try to find a quality of happiness that is not just pleasure, that one is willing to face discomfort, unpleasantness, that there's enough courage, enough commitment. It's not by accident. In some ways, before any of us gets to be here, In a funny way, it's like we've almost done the hardest part already. It's that first turning that is really very difficult. And we have the right, just as the Bodhisattva had that right, to look for the deepest possible sense of realization, because we are in fact capable of that. So our aspiration needs to be huge not bound by the normal psychological, emotional conditioning or cultural conditioning we may hold about how insignificant or ineffectual, incapable and unworthy we may be. That's one whole aspect of right effort. There's a beautiful uh, sutta in the Pali Canon where the Buddha says... um, as Miochen referred to, I think, in the other course, um, cultivate the good. You can cultivate the good. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do it. Relinquish that which is unskillful, which is harmful. You can relinquish it. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do it. It's a, a very beautiful reminder of continually looking for a sense of possibility and not being vanquished by the forces of self-doubt. The other side of right effort is actually a sense of surrender. It's patience. It's being able to see things as they are, let things unfold, recognize that nature takes its own time, that we cannot, in some sense, do everything all right now if our expectation is that we should be having a certain kind of experience. When I first began practicing, when I went to India, amongst the many concepts that I had in my mind, was a thought that a great realization or a state of understanding or wisdom or a greater sense of connection than what I was experiencing at the time would manifest in the form of being showered by brilliant white light. I don't know where I got that idea, but somewhere in college I got that idea (laughs) that That's what should happen in meditation. So I went off to India and I sat and I sat and I sat and I didn't have any white light. All I had was knee pain, mostly, and sleepiness and restlessness and boredom and all of those things. But even as my practice developed and I had many different kinds of insights and I saw the nature of change more clearly and all kinds of things were happening... I continued to disparage myself because it wasn't brilliant white light, which I was absolutely confident was the singular experience that everyone should be reaching for. And then at one point, I recognized that what all of my teachers had been telling me constantly might have some merit to it, which was that it didn't so much matter what was happening. What mattered was how I was relating to what was happening. There was a quality of surrender, not being so manipulative about my experience, not being so despairing, so judgmental, allowing myself to open to what was, to see where it might lead, there's a line from the, a poem from the Taoist tradition, which goes: "Stop setting snares. Get delicate. Relax and follow where that leads you. Clouds may be thick or thin. Windows may be dark or bright. Take it easy. You can break the poor old dragon's jaw by pulling teeth for meaning. Stumble along as upright as you can and don't be avaricious. Who tries to hold what flashes in the worldly storm will drown. Let the sun and the moon handle rising and falling. I'll pretend I know nothing. Which is a pretty great spirit with which to approach meditation practice. Take it easy. Stumble along as upright as you can and don't be avaricious. Another way of saying this has to do with um, this image the Buddha used, where someone once, referring to the, the flood of suffering in our lives, said to him, How, O Lord Buddha, did you cross the flood? The Buddha responded by saying, Without lingering, friend, and without hurrying, I crossed the flood person said, well, what do you mean, without lingering and without hurrying you cross the flood? The Buddha replied, friend, when I lingered, then I sank. When I hurried, I was swept away. So not lingering, not hurrying, I crossed the flood. There's some sense of the grace of that and the rhythm of that. One moment at a time not trying to make something happen, not being lost in what is happening, but with that kind of moment-to-moment progression of connecting, seeing clearly, being open to the next moment. Because this moment, in fact, is dissolving even as we meet it. And we have to see what will happen next. The truth is that it's very hard to judge what's happening in our meditation. If we don't have brilliant white light, that might be okay, but it might be very hard to believe. St. Augustine once said, if what you're looking for is everywhere, you don't need travel to get there. You need love. If what we're looking for is the true nature of things, it's everywhere. We don't need to go from here to there in order to get, to get it. What we need to do is transform our relationship with what is, to see it, to touch it, to be open to it, to recognize it, to trust it, to have faith in it. We need love. We need awareness. So what experience is giving us, what circumstance or conditions are arising to present, it's fine, whatever it is. And in truth, it's very hard to judge our practice because the unfolding of spiritual life is a mystery. It's not so um, linear. It's not something we can uh, package and make predictable and kind of commodify and say well if you had you know 5 minutes of this yesterday then surely you'll have 10 minutes today and you know you know it's going to be okay because you can count on 15 minutes tomorrow it's very peculiar it's a very different kind of process and so that in itself is a pretty radical move to come away from that constant moving back from a process in order to assess it and check it and judge it and rather just surrendering to it, following through, seeing where it takes us. I once had this funny experience um, in San Francisco when uh, a friend took me to Grace Cathedral to walk the labyrinth, which, as I'm sure you know, is a, a preset pattern on a rug where you start at the edge and you go through all these twists and turns and, and with the goal of ultimately getting to the very center They had two labyrinths there. They have two labyrinths there. Uh, One, the indoor labyrinth on the rug, and one, the outdoor labyrinth, which is absolutely the identical pattern, but on granite. So I started inside, and I was going along when, strangely enough, the path which had taken me almost to the very, very center, the goal, swerved and took me way out. So I was way back out at the edge. I thought, I made a mistake. How can that be? I was almost there, and all of a sudden I'm so far away. But the path is already laid out. All I had to do was follow it, so I just kept going. And strangely enough, having been almost in the center and then being taken way out to the edge... I just kept going, and I found that, after a few steps, I was right in the very center. What was really funny is that I went out immediately to walk the outdoor labyrinth, and I had the identical experience, right down to being almost at the center, being taken way out to the edge and thinking, oh, you made a mistake. And then I thought, wait a minute, didn't you just have this experience like three (laughs) minutes ago inside? Didn't you see that sometimes you go out to go in and that you just have to keep going? It's not always so clear. It's not something you can capture. It's not something you can predetermine. It's not something you can judge. And spiritual life is like that. Our meditative life is like that. Sometimes the times of really great suffering are seen to be the times of the greatest illumination. Sometimes the times when we're kind of going along happily are seen to be like a respite before some deeper learning can ensue in another situation altogether. Many times we think nothing is happening, only to discover that all along there's been a process unfolding. One of my favorite meta stories has to do with this time that I was teaching uh, Loving Kindness. I was teaching a day-long retreat in Oakland, California. And one of the reasons I love teaching in cities so much is that when we do the walking practice, everybody has to go out into the streets and do the practice there, and then we come back. So that's what we were doing in Oakland. And this place was right across the street from an Amtrak station. So many people were going out to do their metta walking on the platform. And so they were just going back and forth, silently repeating the phrases, you know, may you be happy, may you be peaceful, or whatever their phrases were. And this woman came back in and told this incredible story. She said that there she was on the platform doing her, her metta and a train pulled in and a man got off the train and she began offering him loving kindness, you know, maybe be happy, maybe be peaceful, and then she took another look at him, and she thought, "You know, I really don't like him." <laughs> you know I don't like the way he looks, I don't like the way he's dressed, he looks really rigid and uptight, you know, and I don't like people like that." So then she was completely aghast at herself. she thought, "Oh, I'm terrible, you know I'm a terrible person i I can't." do the loving kindness properly and not only am I not really doing it properly, I'm actually actively judging him, so you know, all that effort I put into like, may you be happy, may you be peaceful, it was like nothing and then strangely enough the man came up to her and he said I've never done anything like this before in my life but I'd like to ask you if you'd pray for me he said, I'm about to go into a really difficult situation and it would just mean something to me to feel that you were praying for me so then she came back in to the auditorium and she said, "Wow, you know, basically, I guess something was happening after all. Something is happening after all, whether we recognize it or not. And for all the effort and time we put into disparaging ourselves and you know, in judging ourselves, we really should save that effort, that energy because it's it's nonsensical. It's not connected to the reality of the unfolding of a path." which is happening in very mysterious ways. It's not something that we're we're usually able to um, claim some kind of victorious experience that we can take home and have as a trophy. It's something much, much deeper than that. We need to surrender. We need to be completely wholehearted in our presence and at the same time let go of, of demands and ideas and all all of those um, pictures we have of exactly what our experience should look like. We need to have both that huge aspiration and that ability to let it all go and open to what is, to allow the, the Dharma itself to carry us. These two come together, aspiration and surrender come together in the factor of diligence. That means showing up for this very moment's experience, whatever it is, whatever it looks like, whatever it feels like. Not thinking that it's not enough, it's insufficient, we need to trade it in for something else. But really arriving with what is, paying attention to what our experience is, When I was first sitting in India, as I'd said, I'd studied a little Buddhism in in college, in Buffalo. And I went into my first meditation course with a certain sense of confidence that I really understood the teachings of the Buddha. Because after all, I'd done term papers on karma, and I'd had midterm exams and things like that. And, And so I thought, okay, I really have it now. So this is going to be okay. One of the uh, primary and really central teachings of the Buddha is uh, what is known as the teaching of the law of dependent origination, which basically says that, and this is a, a really big oversimplification of it, but it basically says that every moment of our experience, whether it's seeing or hearing or tasting or touching or smelling or... Uh, mental emotional experience every moment of our experience is known by us is felt by us to be either pleasant unpleasant or neutral that's the nature of life and that our conditioned tendency when that experience whether it's seeing or hearing or whatever it is is felt by us to be pleasant our tendency is to want to cling to live in defiance of the law of change, to hold on, to grasp, to preserve. And when that experience is unpleasant, our conditioned tendency is to recoil in fear or to strike out against it in anger. And when that that experience is neutral, our conditioned tendency is to go to sleep. It's to space out, to become dull, to disconnect. And the Buddha went on to say, it's not that it's imagined that in an awakened life, a realized life, all feeling gets leached out and everything kind of dissolves into this gray amorphous blob. It's not like that. There's pleasantness, there's unpleasantness, there's neutrality. Always, because that's in the very nature of things. But rather than clinging and grasping with all of the futility and all of the fear that's really involved in that, when our experience is pleasant, we can instead be mindful. We can be there fully without that extra thing of trying to hold on. And when the experience is unpleasant, we can again be there fully, fully connected to without feeling the shame and the guilt, like we should have been able to prevent it, we should have been in control without feeling um, the anger, which only makes it worse. And when our experience is neutral, we can actually be alive for it, we can actually wake up and be more fully connected. So in that model, independent origination, that means that every single moment of our experience. Whether we're seeing or hearing or tasting or touching or smelling or having a mental experience, whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, we can be free. Or we can be bound. It's right there that we have, we have the possibility of turning our life around, even with the very same things happening. So I had studied this in college. And I went into... My first meditation retreat and suffered excruciating pain, physical pain. On the third night of the retreat the teacher gave a talk on the law of dependent origination and he basically said what I just described that we experience the world in one of these six ways that we know it is pleasant, unpleasant or neutral that we can be bound by our old habits or even seeing the very same experiences we can be free and i would sit there and listen to him and i think boy that is so inspiring you know i've never heard anything said so eloquently that made so much sense to me you know i must have been a buddhist in a previous life because i just feel so in harmony with all of this stuff if only i could get rid of this knee pain you know i'm sure i could get enlightened really quickly because i'm just so in tune and you know, and he would go on and he would describe it with some greater eloquence and detail. And I would sit there and think, that is so beautiful. You know, that's so incredible. If only I could get rid of this knee pain, you know, it wouldn't take long to get enlightened then. And maybe what I'll do is I'll go down to that yoga ashram I heard about in South India and I'll, and I'll spend six months there and I'll really stretch out my body so that when I come back I won't have any pain. And then I'll get enlightened very quickly. And he would go on and I would go on in and, and this sort of incredible internal dialogue. Until one day, and this was a long time later, I got it. And I thought, oh, you know, what he was talking about, and in fact what the Buddha had been talking about, was my knee pain. You know, here was an unpleasant experience in this moment, unwelcome, undesired. What was I going to do about it? Because the prospect of liberation is real. It's not imagined. It's not just a story we tell ourselves. It is founded in and expressed through how we relate to this very moment's experience, whatever it is. And there is no experience that is sort of beyond the pale of possibility because it's either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. We have some very ferocious habits of mind And we have every possibility of turning them around. And we can do that in one moment. And then we have to do it again in the next moment. And in fact, that's the best conceptualization of practice I've ever had or seen, which is to truly understand the moment-to-moment nature of it. It's a very, uh, again, a very simple image that one of my teachers once used, which... I loved from the very first time I ever heard it which was the mind will get filled with qualities like mindfulness and loving kindness moment by moment the way a bucket will get filled with water drop by drop the mind will get filled with qualities like mindfulness and loving kindness moment by moment the way a bucket will get filled with water drop by drop the moment I heard it I could see myself standing by that bucket doing one of two things. One was looking in there and getting lost in a a delighted fantasy about how wonderful it was going to be to be fully enlightened. Think, oh yeah, it's going to be so great. Without having the patience or the humility to take the time to add the next drop and the next drop, to use that moment's experience and then that moment's experience as adding more drops in the bucket. The other thing I could see myself doing right away was standing by that bucket and looking in and saying, Ooh, it's pretty empty in there. That's never going to get filled. And just getting desolate, feeling overcome, feeling helpless. Again, rather than doing what I had to do, which is just add the next drop. Use this very moment, use this experience, whatever it is, use it now. That's what I had to do. And since that time, when I first heard the image and came up with those two alternative visions, I've since added a third, which was standing by the bucket and kind of ignoring it altogether in order to peer off into someone else's bucket and kind of say, Oh, how are they doing over there? You know, <laughs> that looks really interesting. But really, all we have is this moment, and really, all we need is this moment. I have had countless sittings where I have looked back at the end of the sitting and said, okay, was that a good one or a bad one? First of all, it's a completely irrelevant consideration because we won't know um, what is good and what is bad. But even aside from that, it's quite silly to imagine it was just one thing. Because in truth, there were moments of clarity, moments of peace, moments of sadness, moments of Desperateness, moments of frustration, moments of, of sleepiness, moments of clarity. I mean, there was everything. To take our experience looking back at the past and somehow scrunch it all together as though it were just one thing, often a negative thing, is to ignore the law of constant change. And we do the same thing with the future. We project what is happening right now into an unchanging, endless, often terrible future. When Joseph said that I almost always moved, if not always moved, I think it was actually always moved, during those vow hours we had in India, it was true. It took a, a great deal of, of hindsight to realize why I was always moving. And the, you know the ultimate goal of the practice is not to sit still, but rather to learn about our relationship to pleasure, to pain, not to just be driven by mechanical habit as we face those experiences. And so there I was, sitting with this idea in mind that I shouldn't be moving, and five minutes later I'd move. The reason that I moved was because with the first little inkling of discomfort, I would project it into the future. What's it going to feel like in 20 minutes? You know, what's it going to feel like in half an hour? So I was taking that present moment's worth of discomfort and adding to it maybe half an hour's worth or an hour's worth or a year's worth of anticipated pain, trying to bear it all at once, I'd feel overcome and helpless and I'd move. That was actually, and seeing that was a more important learning than moving or not moving, Because that tendency of mind to project into the future, to imagine we know, to consolidate our experience, rather than realizing it's just this moment, and just this moment, is to feel helpless and overcome. So It's a very big thing to come back to the moment-to-moment nature. It means we're not lost in the stories that we are telling about our experience, but learning how to actually be with it. One of my great experiences of that had to do in, with the uh, course that happened here in 1984 with our Burmese teacher, Saita Upandita, where we were seeing him six days a week for interviews in which we were supposed to describe one sitting period and one walking period of the previous 24 hours. So you could say anything, you know, you could say, I sat down and I felt the breath of the nostrils and then I fell asleep and 30 minutes later I woke up or whatever actually happened. But he wanted to know uh, a direct account of your experience. So many of us would just take a few notes at the end of a sitting and at the end of a walking so that we could we could tell him accurately what had happened. So I did that. I had uh, these pieces of paper, and I'd write down a few things, and I'd go in to see him. He was in in M101 upstairs. And I'd bow three times, as is traditional. I'd reach for my piece of paper, but before I could tell him about my sitting or my walking, he would look at me and he would say, tell me everything you noticed when you washed your face, which was nothing. So I had nothing to say. And that was it, that was my interview. And he'd, I'd leave, he'd, he'd tell me to go. So I'd leave and I'd sit as mindfully as I could and I'd walk as mindfully as I could and I'd wash my face really mindfully. And <laughs> you know, I'd feel my hands in the water and I'd feel the water in my face and I was really present. And I'd come in the next day and he'd say, before I could tell him anything, tell me everything you noticed when you took off your shoes, which was nothing. So I'd leave, and I'd do all that very mindfully, and come in the next day, and it would be something else. And I quickly saw where things were going, (laughs) so that in my mind, I called it the torment of continuity. And... It was interesting also to see the difference between my mental projection about it as a torment and the actual experience of it, which was phenomenally liberating because nothing was more important than anything else. Washing my face, drinking a cup of tea, taking off my shoes could be the very thing he wanted to know most about. And so I put my heart into being present. And slowly, as the list expanded... (laughs) The tendency that we all might have, say if you're drinking a cup of tea in the dining room and you get lost in some amazing fantasy and then you come to and you remember the possibility of mindfulness, we might all have a tendency to think, well, you know, the real thing happens here in the hall so I better like throw my cup in the dishwasher and dash into the hall so that I can regroup, you know, reconnect to myself. It was impossible. He was more likely to ask me, tell me everything you noticed when you washed your cup, than he was about anything that happened in the meditation hall. So everything became an act of meditation, as it should be. There was no sense of duality, of separation. The day became seamless. And the tremendous tendency to judge, And here we are seeing him six days a week, you know, by the 14th day, you don't want to go in again and say, well, I fell asleep when I was meditating. That also got challenged because he didn't seem to care what was happening. What he really cared about was whether one could be mindful of it or not. So after a time whether I was describing... Sitting, which he finally allowed me to do, <laughs> or walking, or opening, tell me everything you noticed when you opened the door to walk in this room. I'm like, wow. <laughs> Whatever it was, I would recount my experience, and he would look at me and he would say, Well, did you note it? Which in his lineage means literally, did you place a mental label on it? But even if you're not practicing, Strictly in that way, symbolically it means, could you be present? Could you be aware? Could you be mindful without adding to the experience grasping, aversion, or delusion? That's what he meant by, could you note it? I would go in sometimes and describe these lovely experiences, and he would look at me and say, well, could you note it? And i think, what do you mean, could I note it? It was fantastic. And I would go in many times and describe discouraging, painful, upsetting experiences. And he would look at me and he would say, well, could you note it? And i think, what do you mean, could I note it? It was horrible. <laughs> but over time, of course, I, I began to appreciate his absolute austerity and purity of approach because genuinely... He did not judge. He was not concerned about what was happening. What he really cared about, more than anything, was how I was with what was happening. And so in truth, one could say anything. And he would say, oh, could you note it? <laughs> and that was meaningful. That was a significant transmission. What we need to do is really use what is arising And we can. We can use what's arising no matter how disagreeable it is, how belittling it is. Whether it's physically challenging or emotionally challenging, one of the hindrances, we have that capacity to to transform the nature of the experience by how we are experiencing it. Is a paraphrase of something the Buddha taught where he said something like uh, if you put a teaspoonful of salt in a glass full of water because the, the vesicle, the the object that is receiving the salt is so small, it's so narrow, then the water is going to be very strongly impacted by that. You can put that same teaspoonful of salt or even a truckload full of salt, and a pond full of fresh water, and it's not going to have that kind of impact. The salt is like the irritant in our life. It's the thing we don't want that may be arising anyway. And no matter how much we might wish it otherwise, it's not going to stop. What we can actually do, and what is incredibly powerful, is we can change the size, the openness of what is receiving it. And that will make a huge difference. So that's in the nature of the practice. To do that is not... It's not beyond any of us. It's not that exotic, either. It means recognizing what's happening, being able to see clearly, being able to let go. Here's an example. I once was at a yoga conference uh, to give a talk, and it was also a conference where my yoga teacher um, was was teaching a class. And so I went to his class in the morning, knowing I was going to give this talk right after lunch. And I also knew that part of the talk was going to be that story I told earlier about Lucy and Charlie Brown. So I kind of knew what I was going to talk about. I went to the yoga class and I really love my yoga teacher and kept doing it, but there are certain poses that I just can't do. And uh, one of them is this pose called the wheel, you know, where you lie on the ground, you put your hands behind you, and then somehow you're supposed to lift up <laughs> into this arch. So I've never been able to do that without his help. And um, he asked the class to do it. It was almost lunchtime and he asked the class to do it. And I tried and I couldn't do it. And I thought, it doesn't matter, I can never do it. Then he came up to me and he said, did you get up? And I said, no, I can't get up without you. you know? And so he helped me up and that was fine. And then he began talking again. And I thought, well, he's really running late. You know, and he's got to hurry up because I have to get ready to give my talk. And, and he's running so late, surely he'll, he won't make us do another one. And lo and behold, he said, okay, let's do another wheel. So I lied down in the ground. I thought, I'm not going to get up. It doesn't matter. I can't get up. I've never been able to get up. You know? it's, it's not that big a deal. So I, I put my hands back on the ground, and just then he said, I want you to let go of all limiting ideas about yourself. And I laughed, and I went up. And I was so shocked. I said out loud, I said, oh my God, I'm up. And then the very next thought that came up in my mind was, you'll never be able to do this again. And knowing that I was going to give that talk, and I was going to to use that image that story somehow i heard that voice saying you'll never you'll never be able to do this again and i just said chill out lucy and that was it you know i got to enjoy my moment that's what i mean by diligence it's not that that lucy voice won't come it will come they all come all those hindrances all those problems they come it's almost like the nature of of a purification process. How we relate to them is the key. You know, Can we have some amount of humor, not being completely identified, oh my God, I'm here again, and not doing battle? At the same time, not totally being lost, consumed by believing it. Can we see it for what it is? That's our practice. We do that over and over and over again. And that's all we need to do with all of our experience, the rest will unfold. My first teacher used this example, he said, practice is like somebody trying to split a piece of wood with uh, an axe. They hit the piece of wood 99 times, nothing happens. They hit it the hundredth time and it breaks open. Mostly, At that hundredth blow, we ask ourselves, well, what did I do differently? Was my stance different? Was I holding the axe different? What was different? But it's not that something was so different, but more that the mechanical act of hitting the wood so many times just weakened the fiber of the wood. It took all 99 blows for that hundredth blow to be effective. But it doesn't feel very good. You know, number 28, number 29, number 30, nothing's happening. And yet it is all part of the bigger picture. And even more profound than that, it's not even so much the mechanical act of hitting the wood. Because the, the breaking open doesn't happen in the wood, it happens in us. And that means it's the very fact that we keep going, that we have a sense of endeavor, that we have courage, that it's our, it's our sweat, our sense of humor, our patience. The fact that we, we bring our heart there, that we don't hold back moment after moment. That's the breaking open, that's the transformation. That is something that we practice, no matter what is happening, no matter what is arising in our experience. And so I'll close with this um, comment by T.S. Eliot, who said, for us there is just the trying, the rest is not our business. Let's sit together for a few minutes in that spirit.